Grab a Bible and turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, that's fine. This is a safe place to learn how to read and understand God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have an ESV, which is the version that, that we use on Sundays, you can just pull out your mobile device and type in 2 Corinthians 5 ESV. 2 Corinthians 5 ESV. Or you can head to the lobby at any time. And grab a print copy if you prefer. We have them there available uh, for you at any time. 2 Corinthians 5. If, if you have never heard three consecutive sermons from the same passage of Scripture and you were here last week, then you are about to. That This week is Sermon 2 from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Next week will be Sermon 3. We have pressed pause in our study through the book of Acts to seek a biblical answer to, to this question. What is the connection between courage, courage, and rest? What's the connection between courage and rest? And this all began in some ways because of our study in the book of Acts. Jesus Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 23 and commanded him to take courage, take courage. And in 2 Corinthians, as we're about to read again, the same Paul whom Jesus appeared to, he writes this, we are always of good courage. Always of good courage. How is that possible? If you know the story of the Apostle Paul, he's been through quite a lot. That would be very discouraging. How is it possible to be of good courage? And, and can you and I get in on it too? As Eric introduced this last week, he, he shared with us that he carries, and Mike and I share this concern, he carry an ongoing concern that you and us, too, all of us, aren't getting enough rest. That we're not getting enough rest. And we're not talking about physical rest, as important as sleep and, you know, time off is. But we haven't hacked into your smartwatches to check your sleep scores. We're not talking about physical rest. We're talking about soul rest. A deep and abiding peace that comes from faith. One analogy for faith is rest. We rest in Christ for our salvation and for everything else. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to rest in Jesus Christ. And that produces peace, joy, even courage, strength to face the difficulties of life without, without giving up or without giving in. But without that, without that kind of soul rest, you end up with what lots of people have either been diagnosed or self-diagnosed with. Anxiety. A disproportionate fear of things like our health and our finances and our children and the future and the state of the world at large and anything else you can find to worry about. There's, there's plenty. I read an article on anxiety this week where the author observed she writes this, stress levels are higher than they've ever been. Now, I don't know how you quantify that. I'm not saying this article's right. I'm just quoting what they said. Stress levels are higher than they've ever been. All right. Modern stress, and this is insightful, modern stress is insidious and constant. It feels like a dirty stress from constant deadlines and overload. Years ago, stress was much cleaner. You had a threat. When the threat went, the stress went too. 
Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it sure sounds nice. Like, all right, there's a lion. I shoot the lion with my bow and arrow. The lion is dead. I am no longer stressed, right? No longer anxious. That's clean, but that's not what you and I experience. We, our anxiety kind of rests on us. It's like, uh, like when you go out to the coast and you see the fog just kind of lying heavy over the coastline. That's what anxiety feels like. It lingers. And it's not just real threats, though we all face real threats, real challenges, real problems. But we even face perceived or imagined threats. And those things get us on the edge and they keep us there. There's one author that we love who's gone on into glory. His name's David Pallison. Here's how he describes anxiety. He writes, anxiety is like a red warning light. A red warning light. Just like we practice, guys. Okay, the, the, the jig is up. The mustache, I'm joining, I'm becoming a firefighter. That's why I have the mustache. Retire from pastoral ministry for a less stressful job. Just kidding. The red light is flashing, not on top of the car or on top of the fire engine, but on our dashboards. He's talking about the, the check engine light on your car, Pallison. The red light tells you there's a problem, but it doesn't tell you exactly what the problem is. The anxiety you're experiencing is pointing to a real problem, right? That's when you feel anxious. There's a real problem. The red light's flashing, but you have to get into the mechanic for diagnosis and repair. And I suppose, as your pastors, that's what we're concerned about. We know the red light's flashing. We hear you raising the alarm. You're telling us that you're anxious. But are you getting in for diagnosis and repair? That's the thing that we want to put our finger on. We want you to get good, satisfying soul rest. And that's why we're spending three weeks in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, learning from the Apostle Paul how to be of good courage even when life is filled with with anxieties. Last week, Eric got through one point of his three-point sermon, and if you remember in the middle of the sermon, he gave me the, the assignment to preach this sermon today, to preach point two of last week's sermon. Point one was, this isn't our forever home. That's why you shouldn't be anxious. That's why you should be of good courage. This is not our forever home. We treat our anxiety with the truth that God has a better future in store for us. We haven't arrived We shouldn't expect life to give us what God has promised to give us in the future. And we can experience a measure of rest today if we align our expectations with God's promises for the future. That was last week, all right? Point one, this this isn't our forever home. This week, point number two, before I give it to you, let's read the passage. 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, but I'm really going to focus on verse 5. Follow along with me in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10. I'll read and then pray. Here we go. For we know, we know, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, 
if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6. So, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Very words of God. Please join me in a brief prayer that he would help us understand and apply them to our hearts today. Lord, we ask that you would give us the spiritual capacity to see things that we otherwise could not see. To see a home that's being prepared for us that is not visible. To see the God who is leading and guiding and comforting us with eyes of faith, faith because we can't see you with our physical eyes. So give us the gift of faith that we might see the very things the Apostle Paul is describing here. And that by seeing them, we may rest in you today. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. Those, those lines from the founder of Men's Warehouse, George Zimmer, are burned into my memory. As a boy growing up in the 90s who watched more than his fair share of television, I was subjected to those irrelevant commercials over and over again for a boy has no need for Men's Warehouse. But I watched them over and over and over again, and now those two sentences live in my head rent-free. I cannot get rid of them. And to be fair, it's a great marketing line. It, it really is. It's a great marketing line. I said it and I heard a bunch of you chuckle. I, you, you remember it too. It's a good marketing line. I mean, who doesn't love a good guarantee? Especially in a consumer culture like ours. We love a good money-back guarantee. I love a good money-back guarantee. Nothing makes me feel more confident when I make a purchase than to know that I can return it for a full refund for any reason. Oh, that's so... <laughs> I drove my wife, who's not sitting and she's out with the children, but I drove my wife insane this summer by ordering pairs of running shoes from Amazon so I could try them out. 
before sending them back for a full refund, and I didn't break any rules, all right? I took full advantage of their generous return policy, and, and now I've got the shoes that I like, so I'm not doing that anymore. And it's good for me personally and for my marriage also. But how about a bigger purchase than shoes? How about buying a car? Talk about an anxiety-inducing decision. When you're buying a new car, how reassuring is that bumper-to-bumper warranty to know that for the first few years, if anything happens, the dealer will fix it for free? Well, that sure takes the pressure off. I mean, can you imagine buying a brand new car for tens of thousands of dollars with no warranty? Makes my heart race just thinking about it. May it never be so, Lord. We like guarantees. Guarantees are a great marketing tool because being unsure makes us fearful, nervous, anxious. In fact, it's fair to say that uncertainty, if you were to dig down deep into your own heart, uncertainty is at the root of much of your anxiety. Uncertainty. You don't know. It, like Paul begins in our passage, for we know. The anxious person does not know things for certain. The anxious person, uncertain what people will think of me, uncertain about my health, uncertain about a decision I, I need to make, uncertain about my job, uncertain about the future. And that uncertainty bubbles up into panic full-blown panic, panic attacks even at times. Now, God is not unaware of our uncertainty. And God wants to treat your uncertainty. He does treat your uncertainty. How does he do it? He treats your your uncertainty with certain certainties, okay? He makes promises and pledges to us. Again, many things in life that are uncertain, but there are certain things we can be certain of because of the one who offers them. Verse 5 of our passage. Look at verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. A guarantee. What is the this that God is preparing us for? Well, this is last week's sermon. It's our immortal bodies. That's the this that we're being prepared for. The bodies that we, you and I, those who believe in Jesus, will assume after he appears again and raises us to indestructible life, never to die again. That's the this. And what's the guarantee that that this will happen to you? It's the Spirit presence of the Holy Spirit. Now the word guarantee that Paul uses there, the Spirit as a guarantee, is really a financial term. It's typically used to mean a financial pledge, a, a, well, a down payment. That's the idea. The Spirit is God's pledge that every Christian will one day live in a world with no uncertainty, and therefore a world with no anxiety. One day new bodies with no health, no health problems, no sickle cell. Relationships with no conflict. Not a day spent fretting about paying the bills. 
one day you will exist in a body where you are no longer tempted to sin. You will see God's smiling face and no longer wonder if he's good. The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee of a better life. That's what the Spirit is to Christians. The presence of the Spirit. God's guarantee of a better life. Not, not to be irreverent here, not to be irreverent, but God could say to us more than George Zimmer could, in the next life, you're going to like the way you look. I can't guarantee it. And I think God would chuckle at that too. It's not that irreverent. You're going to like the way you look. I get, that's basically what Paul says. He talks about being clothed and unclothed right at the beginning of the passage. Paul's basically saying, when we take on this new body, we're going to like the way we look. And that helps in the fight against anxiety because you have this spirit dwelling in you. Those of us who are Christians, we have the spirit. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, we have a spirit not of fear, the spirit of power and love and self-control. So let me ask, what difference does the Holy Spirit make in our quest for rest now? What difference does the Holy Spirit make in our need for courage what difference does he make in our battle against anxiety? Let me give you three answers to those questions. I'm going to take them actually right from this passage in 2 Timothy 1. When Paul describes the opposite of fear, he describes three things. So not a spirit of fear, but what? Power, love, self-control. If we lay hold of the certainty of the Spirit, we should experience power, love, and self-control. And we desperately need those things in the fight against fear. They are the opposite of fear. Those are our three points. I'll repeat them as we go. Here we go. Point number one, power. Not a spirit of fear, but power. Immediately after verse 5, Paul writes, verse 6, So, because of this, because of this guarantee of the Spirit, because of that, we are always of good courage. The guarantee that God has given us through the Spirit results in courage and boldness and, and confidence. The very opposite of anxiety. Paul sees the Spirit dwelling in him, with him. He sees the Spirit with eyes of faith, not physical eyes. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. I'm seeing something that I can't see with my physical eyes. He sees what natural eyes cannot see. He sees the Spirit that God has given him as a guarantee of a, a better life in the future, and that gives him courage for today. It gives him an inner strength and, and fortitude and, and unshakableness, a, a foundation upon which to stand against the strong winds that life is blowing at him. Courage. Courage is, is power. It's the power to face circumstances that are intimidating, intimidating or difficult or daunting. That's what courage is. Lots of people have talked about courage. You've seen lots of movies that depict courage. And the common denominator is circumstances that are intimidating or difficult or daunting. Courage is the power to face them. And that power comes from the Spirit. Because you have a great power at work in you. The Spirit himself. And oftentimes when we become fearful or anxious, what's either right there in the middle of it is feelings of weakness or being incapable or overwhelmed or powerless. 
You know, I mean, I grew up in a beach town. I grew up in San Clemente, 30 miles down the road. I, I can remember one time as a kid getting caught in a rip current. Now, I was usually pretty careful when I swam in the ocean. I'm a pretty risk-averse person. So when I, when I out swim in the ocean, I followed all the rules. Uh, but, I, but I remember, probably, I was probably eight or nine years old, the age of my, old, my, my oldest son here, when I realized I was much farther away from shore than I intended to be. And I turned towards shore and did the telltale thing you're not supposed to do when you're in a rip current. I turned towards shore and just started paddling, kicking as hard as I could, and I made zero progress. I mean, eight-year-old me versus the ocean, who's going to win? No chance. In less than a minute, my arms, my legs were exhausted. Now, I have good news for you. Don't worry, I made it. Just <laughs> keeping you on the edge of your seats there. But I'm fine. My mom saw what was happening. She had been a lifeguard. She flagged down the lifeguard. She jumped out into the water. He jumped out into the water. They got to me quickly and brought me back in. But I will never forget that moment, that moment of powerlessness. I'm just stuck, and I realized I had tried, tried, tried. I had run out of energy, and I got nowhere. And there was just that moment, thankfully, but that moment of panic. I could still feel it. If I had had to depend on my own strength, my own power, I would have been done for. Famous author, speaker, missionary wife, Elizabeth Elliot, she wrote the following sentence. This is what she writes about fear. Fear arises when we imagine everything depends on us. Fear arises when we imagine everything depends on us. I love that she uses the word imagine. <laughs> because you really have to use your imagination to depend that every, to think that everything depends on, on uh, us. We're imagining and nothing ever depends solely on us. I mean, not only do none of us live on an island, I, obviously we don't live on an island, we're all here in land, we're in the inland. We, live on a, we don't live on an island, there are people we can depend on. In fact, you're in a church this morning filled with people you can depend on. But even more than that, we're never really depending upon ourselves because we have God on our side. An ever-present help in times of trouble and even in times of peace. One who's always there, always taking thought for us, always attentive to us. And he's present by his Spirit. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in another place in the New Testament. Romans 8, 26. Don't have to turn there. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You're in a rip current, swimming as hard as you can, but running out of energy. That's when the Spirit helps you. He helps you in your weakness, and He has infinite stores of power. <laughs> infinite stores of power, and he is marshalling that power for you. Using his power for you, in you. Rushing to your side to help. Aware of every small and large difficulty you're facing. Aware of every ache and pain that you and I feel, whether physical or emotional or psychological. He's sensitive even to the deepest groanings and longings of your heart. The Spirit knows what you want deep down better than you do. That's how well He knows you. And 
He's helping you. In Romans 8, this is the context here. Paul says, after he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness, he says, for this is a moment of weakness where he doesn't even know how to pray. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought. So weak I can't even get out words to pray. But the Spirit himself in those moments intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There is a power at work in you even when you are at your weakest. And awareness of that power at work in you leaves little room for fear and anxiety. The Spirit is spiritual power. If you're tired because you haven't slept enough, he's not going to magically make you like coffee, like caffeine. He's not giving you physical power. It's spiritual power. And so when you think that you're too weak to make it as a Christian, it could be, probably is because you've lost sight of the Spirit. Which is why Paul's called to walk by faith, not by sight. We have to see the Spirit's presence and his power and his ministry, even when we don't feel it, because we see it by faith and not by sight. In a book on courage, there's two authors, Wayne and Joshua Mack, and they write the following about the Spirit's power working in us when we're weak. Here's what they write. This is very helpful. You think about your future, they write, and you think, I couldn't handle that. I'm not strong enough. But you aren't in that situation yet. So your lack of strength, there's no reason to be afraid. They write, God's not going to give you the strength for a situation until you are in that situation. So, instead of fearing the future, trust God for the strength for today. Remember, you are not alone. You have incredible resources. The spirit of power dwells in you. The Christian, they write, is a person of great strength. The Christian has the power to endure great hardship, to stand strong when life is difficult, and to hang on in the midst of great pain. Why? Why can Christians stand strong? Is it because in and of themselves they are naturally strong people? No, that can't be it. Believers can stand strong because the spirit within them is so powerful. God has given you not a spirit of fear, but of power. Point number two, not a spirit of fear, but of love. Love. 2 Corinthians 5, 5 again. Just the first part of it. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Now, take note of the word prepared. God has prepared new bodies for us, a new tent, as Paul says earlier in the chapter, a new dwelling which we will one day occupy. And this preparation, the fact that God is undertaking this preparatory work is a token of his love. He has prepared something unbelievably wonderful for the people he loves and wants to be with him. Skip down to verse 8. Paul says the second time, yes, we are of good courage, And we would rather 
be away from the body. I don't want to keep living this life anymore. I'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Well, he would only want that if he believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loved him and that to be united with the Lord in that way would be a very, very good thing. And he does believe that. And that's why he's not afraid of death. Knowing that life after death is better, preferable, quite preferable for those who know the Lord, that strips from him the fear of death. He's not afraid to die. He'd rather be with the Lord because to be with the Lord is to be, he uses the word, at home. I'd rather be at home with the Lord. Home is the universal analogy for peace and rest and security, acceptance, and especially love. Now, of course, not, not every home on earth is filled with such things. Some homes are not havens of rest and peace and love. And for those that have not experienced a home like that, you have our deepest sympathy. But everybody can imagine the ideal home. We're talking about the ideal home, and God is preparing an ideal home for those he loves, for those who turn from their sins and put their faith in his son. Jesus said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'll come back to get you and take you there. That's what he does for those he loves. The Spirit is not only a guarantee that that's what's happening and is going to happen, but the Spirit now helps us remember and long for that homecoming. Is that what you long for? Do you long to be at home with the Lord or... Do you long for this world to feel like home? If you or I, if we get caught thinking that this world is home, this world is as good as it gets, and i got to make this life as good as it possibly can be, oh, we're, we're going to be disappointed and disillusioned. Because life on this side is not going to satisfy in that way. We will be anxious if we assume that this life is supposed to feel like home. The Bible describes this life like a pilgrimage in the desert. If you don't feel like you're home, it's because you aren't. Go back to Romans 8 again. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. Romans 8, Paul writes, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, tender name for God. The spirit himself, Paul writes, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And therefore, we will make it into his home. God, God has adopted us as his sons at the cost of his only son. And he did that 
so that we wouldn't live in abject fear of him, so that we would look forward to seeing him face to face, that we would know that he loves us. He who didn't spare his own son isn't withholding not even a drop of his love from you or for me. And that love, the love of God, the rock-solid, secure, never-fading love of the greatest being in existence is a great place for peace and rest now. You can rest secure in the love of God for you. Even if everybody else were to turn their back on you, he would not. There's so few things we can be sure of, right? We gotta hunt. Hunt for and hold fast to those things we can be sure of. And you can be sure of this. You cannot be separated from God's love. End of Romans 8. I'm sure. Again, listen, Paul has so much confidence. I, I, I wish I could read all, from all over the New Testament things he writes. I am sure, I'm confident, I am sure, he writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have the spirit, not of fear, but of love. Namely, the love of God. Point number three. We have the spirit not of fear, but of self-control. <laughs> if you expect to be interrupted, you can never be interrupted. That's just how it is. Fire engines, kids, I love it. Bring it on. Self-control. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 8, that he's of good, good courage, he's, he's describing his mindset, right? His mental state, his confidence. It's, it's another way to say that I'm, I'm at rest. My mind is at rest. I'm, I'm under control of my thoughts, right? And same thing when he says it in, in 2 Timothy 1, spirit not of fear but of self-control. He's talking about his ability to make sound decisions, sound judgment, this is a man who has his thoughts under control, which really sounds nice, doesn't it? Not sure I've ever experienced that, but it's nice to know that it's possible. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, I often feel like I have very little influence over what my mind decides to fixate on. I, I honestly kind of feel like, a, like a, my mind is a pinball machine where the thoughts are just bouncing around and knocking into things and lighting up over here and then beeping and things like that. That's more what my mind feels like. I remember hearing a comedian who said that he has no on-deck circle for ideas. And for those of the uninitiated, the on-deck circle is where the next batter in a baseball game stands and warms up and kind of gets ready. This comedian said his mind has no on-deck circle for ideas. It's just batter up! <laughs> and a lot of the ideas are bad ideas, but he just blurts them out. <laughs> that resonates with me. <laughs> My thoughts often feel out of control. 
especially when I'm afraid. Oh, goodness. When I'm anxious or worried, I have even less control of my thoughts. They just, like I said, bounce around like a pinball in a pinball machine. Perhaps you can relate, but, but God is offering us something different. Through His Spirit, He's offering us sound minds. He's offering us minds that aren't pinballing around between our various fears. You reference Romans 8 again. You just wrote, go read Romans 8 after the service. I've I'm almost preaching two different passages today. Romans 8, this is the spirit of self-control at work in us. Romans 8, 5 through 6 and 9, Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life. And here it is again peace, rest. You, however, he writes, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. It may feel like, at times, you don't have control over your thoughts. That's not exactly how the Bible describes what's happening to you in those moments. It's not that we don't have control over our thoughts, it's that we've given control of our thoughts over to the flesh, the non-spiritual part of us, the merely physical part of us. In fact, the part that Paul would describe in Romans 8, the part that's conditioned to rebel against God. It's when we walk by sight and not by faith. We lose control. And so courage, rest, and peace, these very things we've been talking about, seeking after these last number of weeks, courage, rest, and peace don't come alone. They won't come without self-control. You can't have courage, rest, and peace without self-control. They're a package deal. You can't have one without the other. Self-control is the root, and rest is the fruit. And the battle for self-control is in the mind. What do you think about? What do you dwell on or obsess over? What do you play over and over and over again in your mind? What do you really want? If we obsess over worldly things, if what we really want is worldly things and not the things that God has promised for the future, then we'll have worldly emotions, a worldly experience, worldly anxieties. But if what we really want is what God promises... We'll have godly emotions like joy and peace and patience and kindness and courage. Without the spiritual fruit of self-control, anxiety will run amok in our minds and hearts. But God is offering, again, help to weak people. The Spirit's powerful help to, to settle our thoughts and fix them on our God and our Savior. And really, the thing between us and self-control, probably the biggest thing between us and self-control, is asking the Spirit for it. (laughs) How often does a request for self-control make it into your prayers? Not a real popular, exciting thing to pray for. (laughs) But if God changes your mind, He'll change your life. Change what you think about your behavior will be very different. Remember earlier, I quoted David Pallison writing that anxiety is like a red check engine light on our dashboard. 
tells us something is wrong but doesn't tell us what, if the red light of anxiety is regularly flashing on your dashboard, perhaps the problem under the hood is a lack of self-control. Where do you lack self-control? Don't be afraid to admit it. Don't be afraid to confess it. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. Eating habits, scrolling habits, spending habits. Where are you seeing a lack of self-control pop up? First thing you need to do when you you notice it, remember, Jesus died to forgive you for that failure at self-control. There's no condemnation for people that lack self-control. There's forgiveness. Plenty of it. The right response then is repentance. Name it, confess it, see the Savior on the cross dying for it, and then ask God to help you walk by the Spirit. For those who walk by the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, and the Spirit wants to set your mind on Jesus. Dying on the cross for you, making precious promises to you, one day coming back to get you, Shepherding you through every difficulty and toil and snare. That's what the Spirit wants you to set your mind on. And if your mind is on Him, you will find self-control bubbling up. The Spirit is a guarantee. My friends, you have the Spirit if you believe The Spirit is a guarantee from God of a better life in the future. And that guarantee produces good courage in the present. I want to end the longer quote. This is from a book, a little booklet actually, which I'd commend to you, called Anxiety and Panic Attacks, Trusting God When You're Afraid. This this biblical counselor named Jocelyn Wallace. Here's what she writes. Here's her counsel. I'll leave you with this. It's not always easy to know what fuels our anxious thoughts. Not always easy. But taking a closer look at the desires, beliefs, and thoughts that underlie your anxiety can help you turn to God more quickly before you are overwhelmed with the experience of anxiety. What might be underlying your anxiety and fear, she asks. It may be scary to think about looking more deeply at the things that make you anxious and fearful. Agreed. But remember, she writes, that you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him, by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. This, she writes, is incredibly empowering. Although you may feel like a slave to your fear, in Christ you have been set free and made a child of God. As such, you have the spirit of God dwelling within you, giving you the power to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And as you ask for the Spirit's help, you can take your anxious thoughts captive and bring them under the microscope of God's Word. You will find nothing in them that God has not seen and made provision for in Christ. If you dig in, you won't find anything in your heart or in your life that God has not seen and made provision for in Christ as you grow in your ability to biblically face the reality of what's in your mind. You will also grow in learning to manage your anxiety in a way that honors
by the grace of God. May that be true of us. Join me as I pray that it would. Lord, in this room alone, there are plenty of fears and anxieties. I I would assume that there isn't a person in this room who would say, I feel strong. We confess that we feel weak and distracted. We feel that our our thoughts are not set on the things of the Spirit, but on the things of the flesh. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us the gift of repentance, that we would turn from setting our minds on the things of the flesh and would instead invite the Spirit to set our minds on the great and precious promises of our Savior, who has done everything necessary to prepare us for this future life which will be better than we can even begin to comprehend now. So Lord, by the power of your Spirit today, help us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.